Good afternoon and welcome back to the Conservatarian Exchange on the Liberty Block. At the moment, we're co-hosted by myself, Ed Maslish, and Mike. We're hoping Gina joins us soon. We're not sure about the second Ed. Um, we're also very, very proud today to have a special guest all the way from the UK. I'm going to turn it over to Ed to introduce him in a fitting manner. So welcome, everybody. Take it away, Ed. All right. Welcome, everybody. Uh, our special guest is a guy by the name of Daniel Jupp. If you're on Facebook, I strongly urge you to friend him and follow his posts. Um, Daniel Jupp is a 48-year-old writer from Basildon in the south of the United Kingdom. He has a PhD from the University of Essex, has been an academic, a teacher, and held the usual strange collection of odd jobs that writers have on their CVs. He's the author of articles published in Spiked and The Spectator. He once reviewed books for the Journal of American Studies and published A Gift for Treason, The Cultural Marxist Assault on Western Civilization in, in 2019. He's known for regularly posting his political views on social media, and he has a keen interest in US history and literature. A great welcome, Daniel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Daniel. Hello. So, so, Daniel, you guys in the UK have a new prime minister. Yes, we're Talk blessed. Talk about Liz Truss. We're, we're blessed with another one. Um, well, Liz Truss, um, it's, it's hard to know where to start, really, because um, it's a, a, another triumph of mediocrity, as, as far as I can see so far. Um, Is Liz I mean, Truss... I, in, uh, sorry, go ahead. I don't know how much the US knows about Liz Truss yet. Um, she was our foreign secretary um, in um, Boris Johnson's government. Um, she held posts prior to that as well. But um, I, I suspect that, that most people in America won't know who she is. Well, she's your fourth conservative prime minister in about the last six years or so. Is that right? Yeah, we're, we're trying to um, really get a, a sort of third world record going. Um, of how I was quickly... actually thinking maybe second world. I was going to ask you, <laughs> yeah. is, is Liz Trust your, your Constantine Chernenko? Is she the last <laughs> gasp for conservatives? And if she doesn't fix things, it's going to go way in the other direction? Um, if, Constantine Chernenko being you know... the Chernenko being the, the prime minister in, in the Soviet Union who preceded Gorbachev. Yeah, um, uh, the trouble is there's, there's not really, um, we have a formal distinction between the two main parties, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, but on pretty much every major topic, they will concur. Um, there's, you know, it's very like um, comparing a, a, a rhino Republican with the Democrats. Um, in, you know, in the UK, our mainstream conservatives aren't really conservative much at all. Um, so that's the issue. And, and Liz Truss has a very, um, very conventional background for a British leader. Um, she did the type of uh, degree they all do. She uh, went to Oxford University. So uh, there's nothing really surprising in her background. Um, and she doesn't have those kind of personality quirks that, that make someone stand out that Boris Johnson had. Um, so uh, she's a bit of a, a sort of grey, bland figure in the middle at the moment. 
Uh, whether she'll distinguish herself uh, and prove that that kind of reputation wrong, I don't know. Well, continuing with the with the theme or the your analogy of rhinos to Democrats and and the conservatives and the liberals in Britain, um, my my take on Trump is that he was never really conservative, but he was always a shrewd entrepreneur, and he saw the same thing that you see saw that you just identified, namely that you have this whole conservative political marketplace that's not being served. And yes. I think that he, as an entrepreneur, came in and sold and sold to that market. Uh, he may not have liked the ice cream, but he was going to sell ice cream to that market. And that market was hungry to pay him and, and reward him with votes and support. Um, ideologically, I think that he never really was one of us. And that's part of why I think he lost his way when Fauci and Dr. Burks, you know, started talking about lockdowns. And I think, uh, you know, when the when the riots of 2020 came, he really didn't know what to do because he just didn't have the, the same core that we have. But uh, I guess my question is, one, do you think that's a good analysis? And two, why is Trump the if you do, why is Trump the only one who's willing to, to fill that market void? I mean, it seems so obvious that anybody could could serve that market if they just tried well if you look at um you know uh in popular culture things like the success of the the, the um top gun maverick film um and the, you know the adage uh, go woke go broke there's still the majority of people want those conservative values uh, and they want uh, a conservative voice um so why won't any politician cater to that um, because it doesn't serve their interests in their set. Um, it might um, appeal to the public, but it doesn't appeal to the other people with power. Uh, and that's who they're far more concerned about appealing to. You know, they're, they're far more worried by the opinion uh, formers uh, who are just as liberal as they are than they are about the, the people that are supposedly their votes. Um, so, you know, they're, they're not really that concerned. You look at someone like Liz Cheney, she's got no concern about, she never had any concern about her actual electorate. Um, and, and many of them don't because they assume that there are ways and means of circumventing uh, unpopularity with the public. Uh, and generally they've been proven right. But um, um, I, I mean, as far as Trump goes, um, uh, I don't entirely agree with, with your analysis uh, regarding his ideology. I, I think he's a very non-ideological figure himself. And he came into it with the pragmatism of a businessman. Uh, and he was just looking for what would make America work. Um, but I, I do think he has ideology in the sense of a very deep and real American patriotism, uh, and, you know, and a sense of American exceptionalism. Um, so he has an ideology there, but it was the ideology that 50 years ago, everyone would have had. Yeah, Daniel, I tend to agree with you. I think, you know, he even came out eventually and said, he's like, I'm a nationalist. I think he was just a, a, a real, he, he's patriotic in that sense. He loves a country. He might not be the the person with the most, the best moral character, <laughs> for sure. And he probably didn't believe in a, everything that we do as conservatives. 
But I, I do think that he was obviously far more with us and against us. And I don't think you can fake that completely. Absolutely. And I know there are people because he uh, he was obviously he fell for the whole Fauci line uh, on COVID eventually. And he went along with the, the you know, the mass vaccination, which was, uh, in my opinion, a, a, a reckless travesty. Um, but he um, he did so reluctantly and his instincts were correct. Uh, I think his initial instinct was to, to open America up again. To, to, to get back to normal as fast as possible. Uh, and I think, although he went along with the, with the kind of WF globalist program to an extent, uh, it was under uh, bad advisement, if you like. Yeah, I think there's an argument to, make, to be made that he didn't have all the right people around him either. Go ahead, Ed. I was gonna say, <laughs> WEF, I mean, has, how much inroads do you think they've made in, in Britain and, and Europe? I mean, has has Britain and Europe already fallen? I mean, are we just waiting to, to see the, the, the final play? Uh, the whole Western world has fallen. Um, you know, the whole Western world uh, has these uh, very advanced networks of influence and patronage. The, um, you know, the very fact that every head of government goes to Davos, uh, you know, every uh, chancellor or equivalent for every European nation goes to Davos. Um, everyone signed up to WF agendas. You know, the, the, the two candidates for the leadership of the Labour Party that were left at the end uh, and becoming our new prime minister, um, both of them have, have massive WEF links. Um, you know, Rishi Sunak has them and Liz Truss had them. And uh, pretty much everyone at the top of our politics has them, um, you know, and uh, the WEF uh, send out invitations to effectively groom politicians as soon as they think they might uh, get close to a sniff of power. So, you know, and, and Klaus Schwab boasts about this quite openly, uh, you know, and you look at a roll call of uh, Western leaders, whether it's Trudeau or Macron or Boris Johnson, anyone now. Um, they've got WEF links. Is there any other good explanation for why the European countries like Germany and Britain, for that matter, are committing economic suicide over Ukraine? I mean, we're you know, unless I'm being misled by, by the stories that I'm reading, you guys are on the brink of a fuel shortage and, and possibly food shortages over the winter. And nobody is willing to reverse course. And, and not only reverse, not reverse course, but the, the odd thing to me is if you really thought that Russia was this Hitler-like country that had to be stopped and you saw that the means you were using today to stop them were leading to the starvation and freezing out of your own people, I mean, why not? I mean, I'm not advocating war, but I mean, wouldn't you just drop bombs on them or, or in, invade Russia yourself or or do something different. I mean, th this this march towards economic suicide, it, it doesn't make any sense unless these people are not European anymore. That they're that they're members of the WEF and and not and loyal to them and not to their countries. Well, I mean, if you look at the response of um, the, the really sensible response on Ukraine has come from Hungary, um, you know, which neighbours uh, Ukraine. 
And their position has been, uh, don't exacerbate this conflict. Uh, try to bring both sides to a peaceful resolution. And, you know, sadly, the, the British response has been the exact opposite. And we've tried to stoke and prolong the conflict as much as we can under Boris Johnson's leadership. Um, and, you know, Boris Johnson tried to assume a role that he saw as Churchillian uh, in opposing Putin and defending Ukraine. And it was, uh, it, it's a, an absurd position to take because there's no British interest in it. Um, but then if you look at Germany, that the, their energy needs are far more dependent on Russia than Britain's are. And, you know, they went along with the, the entire uh, demonization of Russia and this kind of absurd pretense that, that Russia is going to conquer the whole world if we let it. Uh, do what it wants in Ukraine. Um, you know, this. But, but even if you borrow the premise for a second, and I'm sorry to interrupt, I mean, let's just pretend for a moment that they, that Russia was geared towards world conquest. And let's pretend for a moment that there was some vital British interest in there. Would Churchill just sit there and say, oh, well, I guess the people are going to have to be a little cold this winter, and I guess they're going to have to be a little hungry. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. He would he would say, OK, we have a national interest there. So we're going to we're going to send troops or we're going to blockade them or, you know, I, I don't understand why they would continue doing what they're doing. If Britain and Germany and France, you know, if, if, the, if that was your if these leaders were really leading those countries rather than some, you know, rather than being, you know, Manchurian candidates for somebody else. I think, um, yeah, I, I you know, the end of your comment there hits it the nail on the head, really, because um, everything that globalist leaders do generally uh, tends to be against the interests of their own countries and their own people. Uh, and almost if you said by definition, uh, a globalist leader cannot uh, better his people because he's not interested in bettering his people. He's interested in um, supporting the WF agenda and getting society to the point that, that the WF wants it to be at, and other transnational bodies. Um, so, you know, this idea of sacrifice, uh, sacrificing your own nation uh, in pursuit of these aims, um, isn't one that they balk at. You know, they're, they're not like Trump or like a traditional leader from the past who would be putting their own national interests first. They, they see putting your own national interests first as, as some kind of evil behaviour. You know, they, they see it as uh, um, nationalistic and therefore uh, linked to Nazism and therefore evil and wrong. Um, and, and this is a, a way of thinking that's, that's grown from the Second World War onwards. And, and in a way, the Second World War distorts the perception of our rulers today. Uh, because they think that any display of national loyalty is uh, a, a potential Hitler in the making. And where does um, Gavin Newsom uh, fit in with that? Because according to him, everybody needs to sacrifice for the greater good. Well, yeah, the, the, I mean, they you love, talking right about him. They, they'd love sacrificing on behalf of others, don't they? And, you know, it's. It's not themselves who are, who will struggle because they're protected in a bubble of wealth and their own. Uh, I hate to use a you know a leftist term, but their own privilege. Sure. 
Um, so they, they will not be the first people to suffer the consequences. And they always assume that there's some escape method for them from the consequences. Uh, they prove that to us every time they were caught without their mask on when they were supposed mm -hmm. to have it on. The French laundry. Uh, which gets to the media, but, which I know we're going to get to. But again, if you're a globalist, if you're a globalist, you don't see any difference between cultures. There are no good cultures, bad cultures, e you know, evil cultures, morally superior cultures, right? So, well, I mean, that's as, one as, of the... as Americans, we assert our national sovereignty. <laughs> if you do as as a, a Brit, you stand in the way of their aims. Absolutely, and um, you know. And it's, it's all totally dishonest anyway, because we know that they make very strong moral judgments, just, uh, you know, where evil is good and good is evil and up is down. Uh, but they're, they're, they have a very strong moral sense themselves. Sure. It just happens to be wrong all the time. Let me ask you something else. Putin has ties in the past to the WEF. Do you think there's any chance that this is all a giant game and he's just playing the role of the bad guy? And that he's in on it just like everybody else, and that the whole um, goal is to bring down Western Europe. No, I think I think we can go down the rabbit hole a bit too far sometimes, and um, you know, I I don't see them as intellectually competent enough to have engineered uh, uh, um, uh, Putin being uh, uh, you know doing what he's doing uh, out of WEF interests. I think the whole reason why uh, Putin is attacked so much and you know obviously he's uh, probably not a pleasant individual and you know governs Russia as an effective dictatorship but um, this idea that he wants to conquer the world is ludicrous uh, Russia doesn't have the capacity or the desire to do so um, and the way he's set up as a bogeyman I think there are several factors in that one of them is that the, the real global bogeyman uh, they've helped create and they can't deal with, which is China. Um, you know, Russia is, is weaker than China. It gives you that external threat, that external enemy that, that allows you to, you know, like all totalitarians, to, to blame someone else for the things you've caused. Um, and, and Putin serves that role because he's just strong enough to be noticed and just weak enough uh, to, to be challenged. But there were a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. I guess while we're talking about Russia and Ukraine, what is your view of everything that's taken place there? Why he did it? Your view of Ukraine? I mean, we talked about it a lot on the show. It's, it's not all black and white. You know, Ukraine isn't all innocent in this, but I'm just curious to hear your take. Um, my, my view is that um, if the same things had happened to a Western nation, every single one of us would, done, would have done the same thing that uh, Russia did. Um, you know, you, you can't say that we were justified in uh, committing the, the, the Iraq wars um, based on what we knew of Saddam Hussein and um, that, that Putin wasn't justified in defending his national interests and borders uh, as well. Um, you know, because... Um, as far as Russians are concerned, if you've got the possibility of, of, of NATO uh, weapon, nuclear weapons on your border aimed at you, um, there, there's, it doesn't really mean much to say it's a defensive alliance. 
to the people who your nuclear weapons are pointing at. Um, yes. You know, so I know I, I, I fully understand that that Putin governs as a dictator and, that you know, there, there's elements of the, the Russian military and the Russian intelligence services that are incredibly brutal. I fully accept that. Um, but if you've had a conflict going on since 2008 in which 14,000 people have died and many of those people uh, are people you feel emotionally and historically connected to, um, they speak the same language, they have the same ethnicity, they're in a border region that was once part of your nation uh, and was, was, you know, the, the mythology of this for Russians is enormous because Ukraine is where Russia started. Um, you know, the Kievan uh, princes, um, they, they, they first gained territory. They first announced, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church uh, effectively began in Ukraine. Um, this is a, a, a place that they're very strongly historically and emotionally connected to. Um, and it would be like, uh, you know, for us, um, if, if a, a foreign power set up um, uh, weapons testing labs and um, uh, chemical bases and uh, nuclear missile sites in Scotland, um, you know, we wouldn't tolerate it. And, and why should Russia tolerate it? Um, Russia sees itself as a great power still. Uh, that may or may not be accurate, but that's emotionally where they are. And they react very badly to disrespect. Uh, and we've given them, since uh, the days of Yeltsin, we've given them nothing but disrespect. Essentially, you're, you are blaming NATO, right? I mean, that, that's pretty much what we talked about on the show quite a bit, was that the expansion yeah, of, NATO, uh, of NATO. The poked, thing is, we, the we have, uh, we have, I mean, it's since emerged, it's emerged more recently, that we had an opportunity to, to really bring Russia into uh, the Western sphere of influence and, and to befriend them. And, um, and, you know, it was fairly typical of, of as important, but a, a kind of, uh, you know, insecure sense of importance because they'd just lost the Cold War, that, that Putin wanted to join NATO, but said, we don't want to queue for it. We're, we're an important nation. We don't want to stand at the back of the queue but we want to join. And, you know, with a little bit more intelligence, the Western powers could have accommodated that fairly easily and we wouldn't be where we are today. Um, I don't blame NATO entirely, but there's been a kind of expansionist aim in NATO that, that doesn't serve its original purpose at all. Right. Thank you. I guess the, the other thing I was gonna ask you about was, was Brexit. And the status of that, it's been a number of years now, and apparently nothing's really happened. Yes. Uh, right. I'm, I'm curious about um, your take on that as well. Um, well, I'd say the situation we're in is, um, you know, uh, like a, if your leg's in a bear trap and you've got half of it out, that's where that's where Britain is on Brexit. You know, the. Um, I was one of many who was fooled into thinking that Boris Johnson wanted a real Brexit um, and supporting him on that basis. And one of the reasons for the decline in his popularity is that it became evident that that wasn't the case. Um, you know, very few people realise, I think, 
um, that, that Boris Johnson's deal with the EU that was eventually signed off on was almost identical to Theresa May's deal, which was a, a very soft version of Brexit. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a hard Brexiteer. I, I wanted us completely out of uh, the EU and not giving them a penny more of our money. Um, but, you know, the, uh, the uh, vested interests at the time uh, were very persuasive to, to the people in power in saying that that would have been economically ruinous. I don't think it would have been at all. But they, they set their faces against any kind of hard Brexit. And what we got was a compromise with, that still retained the name of Brexit. How do they rationalize not moving forward on it? The British people have spoken and spoken clearly that they want out. I mean, what, what exactly how do they get away with not, you know, what do they tell you people? Uh, they tell us that we're too stupid to make that decision, essentially. Um, they, uh, that sounds like our government, right? Yeah, it's very similar. It's very similar. I mean, uh, you know, just like uh, um, Hillary Clinton calling millions of people deplorable, um, it, it's the same process. The elite now um, are completely convinced that the general public aren't smart enough to elect the right people, i.e. them. Um, you know, and that, that they have the same attitude to the general public in, in the whole of the Western world now, the um, 18th century aristocrats would have had towards a peasant. Uh, that's where we are, that they have that, that completely superior viewpoint. And, you know, when we had the whole Brexit debate and we had the Remain arguments that were put across, virtually every single one of those arguments was an appeal to authority. It was saying, you know, look at the, the, the smart people, the wise people, the powerful people we have on our side. Um, who do you have on your side? You don't have anyone powerful or influential. Um, and the people didn't care because the people had uh, a, an idea that they wanted independence from the EU and they weren't going to be dissuaded from that. Um, but the elite tried every dirty trick they could think of to, to try and scupper Brexit. If voting doesn't work and voting continues to not work, what other alternative is there other than revolution and secession? Um, well, I mean, there's two routes, isn't there? The, and, and whether they will work or not is another matter. There is the route of revolution, um, you know, watering the, the tree of liberty with blood. Uh, or there is the route of, uh, you know, you might think that a Gandhi-type level of protest would work. Um, what kind of protest? You know, a a Gandhi-style uh, mass public oh. protest that's ongoing and primarily peaceful, but just doesn't stop until the situation changes, uh, which is what, you know, the Gandhi led in India. So you think those are the two options available to you guys right now? And when we say you guys, I mean us guys, too. I mean, we're frustrated here with Republicans that won't listen to us and not only won't listen to us, but won't be an effective opposition. And well, there's and a lot I, of debate. There's a lot of debate just, about what we do. Go ahead. And I'm concerned with him saying all these mass protests. I mean, look what happened in Canada with the truckers. They were out there every single day. And what happened to them? 
It went nowhere at the end. I mean, you don't oh. hear about it anymore. Their bank they went, they went after their bank accounts. And right. That's, that's the other problem that we face. Right. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely see the problem there. And, um, you know, uh, I've, I've always opposed political violence. And, you know, I, I don't uh, I've always stood against it. Um, but there does come a breaking point, I think, for, for any people when they are ignored to the extent and oppressed to the extent that they have to respond. Um, I, I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're close. Um, well, and, you think if you're uh, starving and freezing over the winter, you might be there? Yeah. Um, well, the, this is part of the reason why there's so little action, I think. I think um, we've inherited a, a very high, historically, um, the, the highest degree of comfort that any people have ever experienced is, is what is normal in the Western world today. Um, you know, and, and that gives uh, bad rulers a certain amount of insulation from the effects of their actions because we've got a distance to fall before we're really struggling, you know, especially in the first world. Um, but we're rapidly becoming the third world and it's becoming more and more evident that there are people in power who actually want that to be the case. Um, so, um, yes, if there's a, a severe and lasting energy crisis, if there certainly if there's food supply disruptions and food shortages, then violent rebellion becomes more more um, possible. Um, you know, it's famously said that you're only a, a couple of meals away from a revolution. Um, the trouble is that we've got a, a kind of store of history that puts us in a comfortable position. Uh, the success of previous generations of Western leaders. Um, so we're we're a few more meals away from revolution than most people, but it it does come if people are starving. <laughs> so how much does the political landscape in in the UK mirror what we have here in the US? you have the type of division left versus right that we are enduring right now? Um, I, I think it, it's very similar, but more subtle. You know, the, one of the things that always interested me about the US and the reason I studied the US at university level um, is because it's such a big nation with, with uh, such extremes. Um, you know, the, the, the good in America, as far as I see as an outsider, tends to be very, very good. And the bad tends to be very, very bad. Uh, you know, you, it's a, um, your politics is a Grand Canyon. You know, it, it's a spectacular view. Ours is more subtle. You know, they're, they're, we have had nothing as, as obvious as the 2020 stolen election that you've experienced. Um, our, you know, we... We haven't had a, a British ruler stand up and give uh, a kind of Nuremberg rally type speech as Biden did the other day. Um, you know, but we, we've had no blood red backdrops <laughs> and, uh, and calls to, to, to consider every conservative evil um, in the UK. So we're more subtle about it, but we've effectively moved more towards tyranny uh, just as much as the U.S. has. Right. So on a lighter note, Ozzy Osbourne isn't going to be in a much less divisive place now that he's leaving the U.S. and going back to the U.K.? 
<laughs> Say that again. Well, Ozzy Osbourne decided to leave the U.S. to go back to the yeah. U.S. Oh, yes, yeah, he said, yeah. He said it's it's too divisive here. So yeah. Um, no, he'll he'll go somewhere. You know, if he does yeah. come back, he'll go to some leafy county that sees none of the trouble, yeah. which well, is uh, you know what what most people with money do here. Well, also on a lighter note, it's interesting to me that all the the British artists, you know, we had the uh, the British Revolution. So many musicians from the UK, uh, Jimmy Page, Led Zeppelin, all moved to the US because it was a tax haven. Yeah, it's not that way anymore. <laughs> they don't no, have that, no. they don't have that incentive anymore. Are you are you cynical enough to say they might have a financial reason for this? <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I assume it's as bad in the UK with the the tax climate as it is here, but. <laughs> It used oh, to be a lot, a lot better here for them. Yeah, the, I mean that's one thing that there there may be a modicum of hope with uh, Liz Truss, because I, I think uh, you know she has spoken about um, cutting taxes, um, so it might be coming that that we get a slight improvement there. But you know, the, you're talking about that, borrowing money, right? I mean, what good is cutting taxes if you're just going to borrow money? I mean, the real um, problem is government spending, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And anybody with a, a modicum of economic sense knows that. But no government, Western government at the moment, until that bubble of debt bursts, none of them are, are really going to reverse it because um, the debt has become uh, like a, a shark that needs to keep moving. You know, it, it has to keep biting. It has to keep feeding itself. We, we have to keep generating more debt or the old debt is called in. Um, you know, so uh, they're, they're kind of, they're, there will come a point, you know, like the South Sea bubble, like every economic crisis there's ever been since then. Um, there will come a point where it's unsustainable. Um, until we're there, um, it serves the interests of any politician to pretend that there's a magic money tree and we can keep doing this. Yeah, I mean, that's like saying that you know, until you until you have diabetic shock, there's no reason to cut back on your sugars or, or anything else. I mean, waiting until the catastrophe happens just seems beyond myopic. I mean, again, it gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show with the, the, the suicide of the West and the willingness of its leaders to to sacrifice their own countries. And I, I get it that the electorates are, are partly to blame for it, but um, I just don't see any any leadership whatsoever that's willing to speak up and say, this is unsustainable. The emperor has no clothes. If we continue to do this, we're going to we're all going to be broke and and in, in chains. See, but that's just another that's just another option for them to come back and rescue everybody again. It's never going to stop. They'll, they don't care how far we go in because they'll use it as their option to come in, swoop it all up and save the day again. So, I mean, I really. There isn't an end in sight. Well, one you know, good man in government or woman it, in government. It, it's possible that, that they want even more than that, isn't it? It's, it's possible that they deliberately want to break the system. Um, right. you know, that, that, that they exactly. want to crash the whole thing because they know it's unsustainable. Um, but they, they like the perks and privileges that come with, with power. Um, so they've tried to figure out a way. How do we... Uh, keep on this track um, 
crash the car and then claim the insurance money. That's that's what they're trying to do with, with the exactly. economy as a whole. Exactly. And I think that really is a good summation of what they're doing with Ukraine. I think they view Ukraine as a means for crashing the car. That's what I was trying to get at earlier with it. It, it doesn't make any sense. Even if you thought you were being Churchillian, you know, Churchill wouldn't do what, what they're doing right now. He would do something different, even if he made a mistake and and thought that this was the you know, that that sanctions were the means to, to get Putin. He would take a look out there and see that the ruble is stronger than ever, that the Russian yeah. economy is stronger than the European economies, that that Russia is the one that supplies natural gas and energy to Europe. And he, and he would look and he say, well, if we're trying to get Russia, this is not the way to do it. So I can only conclude that this is a means of intentionally crashing the car. There's no other yeah. explanation to me. Uh, I mean, I, I used to be um, I used to be weighted towards thinking that they were incompetent fools. Uh, and the more time has gone on, uh, the more it appears evident that, that, that they, they do actually want the destruction that their policies entail. Because I can't see anyone being this incompetent this often. You know, the, the other day I was, I was reading reports about how um, uh, the Bank of America is looking at um, zero percent loans uh, and mortgages um, that will be provided solely to um, black and ethnic minority uh, applicants. <laughs> well, this is exactly what caused 2008. You know, the, the roots of the, the 2008 economic crash go back to um, Bill Clinton decided that deciding that you needed to to have uh, more black homeowners and that they that the banks should be encouraged to uh, offer subprime mortgages and to get people on the property ladder who were unable to pay um, for the mortgages that they're taken out. Uh, and that's added a slew of bad debt that was ultimately behind. That was the, the quicksand beneath the whole uh, credit collapse um, in 2008. And they're doing the exact same thing again for the exact same reasons. Um, anybody should be aware, if you've just had a massive disaster doing this thing, not to do it again. Uh, but they seem not to be. Well, that's because I think the way the system is set up, the banks no longer hold the loans. The banks make the loans. They make their money on loan fees and loan application fees and points. And then within seven to 90 days, they resell those loans into the secondary marketplace, usually to a government-sponsored entity. And they don't have to worry about whether the loan is going to be repaid. Their, their job in the system is no longer to collect. Their job is only to make the loans and collect the, the application fees. So they, they want to just lend and lend and lend and lend and lend. And that's what they do. Yeah, and, and under, you know, modern monetary theory, they're, they're, they're all too big to fail, so don't worry about it, which is, you know, uh, has to be one of the most uh, obvious examples of magical thinking in economics there's ever been. Um, you know, don't worry about it. It's too big. Uh, we can make it even bigger. And, and we build the disaster up and up and up, and uh, nothing will happen because look how terrible it will be if that collapses, well, you know, that's, that's utterly ridiculous and incredibly dangerous, but 
this is a supposedly uh, a Nobel-worthy economic theory today. So if you I'm hearing everybody correctly, we're looking at dystopian future with pretty much no out. Um, yeah, yeah, we're, we're sort of in dystopian purgatory at the moment and dystopian hell is to come. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I, I think we can sound too bleak. I, I think it can all be avoided. You know, you look at the difference between the Trump economy and the Biden economy. You know, it doesn't take long for disaster, uh, but it, then it doesn't take long for salvation either. If you follow the correct policies, if you follow sensible policies, uh, the trouble is we don't have a selection of people who, who are offering that. See, I'm going to I'm going to go back to media, which is one of my pet peeves. And I, my impression was you kind of see it that way. When things are going horribly, half the country has no idea. As far as most of the country's concerned, the gas prices have gone way down and Biden's a hero, et cetera, et cetera. And Trump was an anomaly and they put him in his place with his J6ers in prison. I don't see ever breaking through with enough of the population knowing how bad it is to actually change anything because the media will never let that happen. I think that's absolutely correct. And, and I think you have to break the power of the media first. You know, that's the first task. And it, it's happening to an extent in alternative media. You know, there, there's, there's an organic growth of a resistance to, to the media message. Um, you know, whether that's, you know, <laughs> like Russell Brand or Paul Joseph Watson, um, you know, or um, even, you know, Ben Shapiro, um, the, the emergence of these kind of personalities is a good thing. Um, and every forum that people can use that gives a different narrative to, the, to those of the, the kind of globalists in charge is, is worthy and uh, should be defended. That's why free speech is so important, obviously. Well, even for, you know, for whatever they're worth, if you go far, you're shut out by the media. And there's really no way around that either. You know, Parler, I believe, just got back on to Google Play after two years. True yeah. Social's not allowed on Google Play, as far as I know. Um, so as much as a voice as people have talking to 8 million, 10 million, but you're still cut off from the rest of the country. And we say break up the media. I don't see Congress wanting to break up the media because that's where they get their funding from. So yeah. I, I don't really see it actually happening. No, uh, it, it's going to be very difficult, and it's a corrupt circle. You know, the, 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 the interactions between government and media now, are it, it's impossible to tell the difference between them, really. Um, you know, there's, it, it's even more than, than would have been evident under a dictatorship. You know, um, Pravda, the capacities of Pravda in the Soviet Union were tiny compared to the 24-7 news cycle uh, and the, the total complicity of the entire Western mainstream media in um, the destruction of liberty at the moment. So it's a huge task, um, but, um, you know, the, it has to be done and, and we have to get to that point where the big social media companies, the big tech companies, um, the, um, the traditional media outlets are broken 
they have to be broken before they completely break us. But how can that happen without revolution? I mean, and not that I'm an advocate of revolution necessarily. I, I just don't see, I mean, we can't plead with them. Government's not on our side, government's on their side. How, you know, they control the means of, of communication now. How can we, I don't see what the other alternative is. I mean, is, is there something I'm missing? I think we need to we, we need to kind of think that we're at the point, you know, when um, Saul Alinsky wrote Rules for Radicals, that that was written as a template for how you take power. And it's worked. And, and they have followed this playbook. And, and we haven't had a responding playbook. You know, we uh, conservatives react. They haven't created the situation. They haven't chosen the battlefield. And some of the battlefields we've completely ne neglected. You know, the, the, we, we, we've only just started fighting the culture war um, and they've been fighting it for 70 years and we've only just started. But you can fight back. Uh, and it, I'm sad to say it, but the, the best way of fighting back is by copying them. You know, sure. we, we so, have uh, Daniel, let me interrupt you for a second since I'm all dystopian at the moment. Yeah. The reason that they control everything is they get the government to pay them to do it. Yes. Conservatives, by definition, will never do that. Conservatives, by definition, will never start national public radio and ask the government to pay for it. Conservatives, by definition, will not start a university and get the government to pay for them to indoctrinate people. So yeah. there really is no way to organize against it because very few people can afford to give up their lives financially to go there. The other side gets paid by tax money to do what they do. And we've got to do the same. You know, we're, we're not we going to, to because we don't believe in that. We, uh, we do not I know, but we, we have to, uh, you know, you have to become the monster you're fighting to win. Um, and we have to set aside our principles until we've won. Now, that sounds uh, like we uh, have, what was George W. Bush's quote? You have to destroy capitalism to save yeah. capitalism, something yeah, like that. Exactly. The conservatives yeah. won't do it. And even the five of us here today wouldn't agree on doing that, I don't think. So well, I, I mean, I would I would agree on using the apparatus of the state to destroy the state. Uh, you know, I would I would agree on taking um, you know, these these vast power networks that they've got and using it against them. I would agree on uh, subverting institutions. Um this is what the left has done, and it's why they've won. Um, and, you know, it's it's like we're, we're trying to, to fight according to Queensbury rules in a boxing match. Okay, but, but and, even besides and, that, their modus operandi is collective. Therefore, yeah. they work well together. We, by definition, are not collectivists. I mean, I think, you know, we're based in New Hampshire, which is strongly mm. libertarian, and you may have half the population there wanting to go in a certain direction, but by definition, they can't work together because they're so anti-collectivist. So the collectivists and the teams are always going to win against individuals. Um, generally, that's true. Um, and, but I, I think that, you know, you look at the, the um, uh, were the, the, the founding fathers collectivists? Uh, well, in one sense, they were, because they were gathering together for a purpose and were, were utterly united in that purpose. You know, the, the, you have to 
you have to organise, and we don't organise. And yeah, I mean, you know, do you see it's, it's, it's like dirty? It's not anti-individualist to organize when you're trying to promote, you know, and push an agenda of certain ideas and principles. You know, when I worked for Americans for Prosperity, you know, we were able to mobilize a lot of people on the ground. I mean, one of, one of the problems that the conservative movement has always faced is we fund all these think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, and we throw out all these ideas and do all these papers, but we never get the boots on the ground. The left has always been able to get the boots on the ground. But I also agree with you, Daniel. We ha definitely have to take pages out of Valinsky's book and, and use it against them. Absolutely. 100%. Well, yeah, I, I think those are tactics. I think a lot of it with having this alternate economy with conservatives is going to be where we take anybody down. I don't think we have to stoop to all of their tactics. I mean, all of it is power and money driven. And if we can keep putting out stuff to get a strong economy from the right. I think that's where we're gonna uh, have change come from. So I've all the tools in the toolbox. For about a year now, maybe two years, I've said that we are living in the prequel of 1984, because you pick up in 1984, a 100% totalitarian state, and you wonder how it got to be that way. And I think the assumption is that they crush the population into complying with the telescreens, et cetera. And we're actually living in the prequel to 1984 because we have invited every single method of knowing every thought we have into our homes. We've actually paid to get them into our homes. So now I see how we got to 1984. We can organize all we want, but if you have a smart thermostat and they freeze you out and you have a smart electric grid and they turn off your electricity, you can't. And they will play that game. Again, you look at the January Sixers. They play for keeps and they do control every lever of power. But then, uh, you know, you have to say that that's true. And, and they do control everything, uh, unfortunately. Um, you know, at the risk of sounding like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat. They do control pretty much everything. Um, and we are starting from that point. But... Uh, my point about um, rules for radicals is not just that that gives a template of how to get into power. It's look at the position they were in when that was written. You know, the 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 um, they were where we are now. So the fact that they could make that journey and now control everything when they controlled virtually nothing means that we can do the same thing. So in a perverse way. The, the, the terrible route we've gone down um, proves to us that there's a route back. So I'm not a historian, but I believe that Woodrow Wilson and FDR were way before Alinsky. And they were taking the country far left before Alinsky. And oh, yeah. they've been taking yeah, uh, the country that way since Abe Lincoln. I, I, didn't, I didn't mean that there were no precursors, but they're... Their social position and cultural position uh, in the 1950s, for example, was, was very different to what it is now. And they successfully undertook a cultural revolution um, to put us where we are today. Um, but if that can go in one direction, it can go in the other direction. So we should be hopeful about that. But it um, unfortunately but, can't go in the other direction peacefully. Um. I'm not sure. Um, I, I, 
I, I think it, I still think it can, but uh, I understand people thinking that it can't. Let, let me ask you something that tries to tie some of these things together. Uh, what did, you mentioned Biden's Nuremberg rally speech. Yes. You know, it, what were your thoughts on the speech generally? And do you think that it signified that the Democrat Party is about to stage a coup? Because the speech itself and... Well, the and coup was the in way... 2020, wasn't it? They've already well, staged the coup. Yes, yes, but there still is at least the illusion of a free election. Maybe they're about to take that away. Uh, maybe <clears throat> January 6th, you know, we've been talking about January 6th. You know, if, if the president says that there are 74 million enemies of the state and they all have the right to vote, my first reaction is, why would you wait for the election results to see how they vote before you do anything about them? I would think if they're really enemies of the state, he's going to do something before the election. Now, maybe that's tinfoil hat, too. But, um, you know, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I think that the, the I mean, there, there, are, there is nothing that they wouldn't be prepared to do. But I don't think it's in their interest to be um, that blatant because it wouldn't work at the moment. Um, you know, I think there would be enough resistance from patriotic Americans uh, who are on. You mean like there were after the 2020 election? Yeah, um, but the, they, were, they weren't mass arresting um, millions. They don't have to mass people. arrest. None of us are going to risk. Um, being one of the J6ers. They only had to arrest a few hundred and lock them up in solitary and put an end to that. And the point is, 10 years ago, those of us who think they stole an election, even if you just look at how they changed the rules at the last minute in states like Pennsylvania, yeah. would have said they would never do anything that blatant. But they did it and they got away with it. So why wouldn't they? Especially since 90% um, yeah, of the country would never know they did it. Do you listen yeah, to I, I, I think this is the they don't need mass arrests, as you say, because uh, all they they so I don't think that's I think there will be roundups of every um, you know conservative thinker and every but there might be um, thousands that are, are treated like that based on the treatment of the January sixers. Um, they might need they, mass they, arrests they, to prevent voting though. Sorry? I said they might need mass arrests to prevent pe people from voting. If you're incarcerated, you can't vote. Ed, Ed, really, they don't need that because you only need to win a certain amount of precincts in a certain amount of states to swing any election. And simply pulling away the electricity in several buildings accomplishes half of that. So you don't need to control 330 million people. You need to control 10,000, 20,000 people. I think that's exactly right, yes. Um, and, you know, I think you're already... And you're, you're already in a tyranny. Um, and, uh, you know, that is the case from the moment that the 2020 election was... The evidence that came out at the time and all the additional evidence we've had, um, it's it's 
you know, if you if you deny the reality that that election was stolen, um, you're simply repeating mainstream lies. Um, so we know it was stolen. But from that point on, you've got an illegitimate president and you've got a regime. So you, you are in a dictatorship at, at this moment. And just uh, repeating Ed's question, what did, what did you think of Biden's speech the other day? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I imagine that, that your reactions were fairly similar to mine and, and most people on the conservative or patriotic side uh, will feel the same. Um, it's, it's one of the most disgusting things I've ever witnessed. Um, and it, it's... You know, it's sad, but it's predictable. And we've been coming to this point for a while. Um, Let me ask you a question. How many people... You know, they, they, they steal the, the language of liberty even while they kill it. Um, so there's, there's parts of the speech that, that you thought, if he was genuinely facing, uh, uh, you know, a, um, a Nazi-type threat, those parts of the speech would have been highly appropriate and you might have been proud of them. Yeah. Um, but to, to, to say this stuff simply about people who vote differently to you and have different solutions for social problems to you uh, it is utterly disgraceful. So let me ask um, you a question, Daniel. Does anybody here or anywhere you know believe he wrote that speech? How many people believe he even knew what he said and who did write that speech? Now, we know Biden the next day denied having anything against Trump supporters, which may yeah. not mean he's cognizant of what he did say. But who wrote that speech? Oh, well, I mean, we all know that he's a puppet, you know, and that, that, that he's in severe cognitive decline. And, you know, he barely knows where he is at any given moment. Um, so, you know, he's... Do you, have, do you have a theory of who is in charge? Um, I think the speech was probably written by a staffer who's about 22. Um, but that's not the person in charge. Um, you know, I think the, the, the people in charge are the billionaire backers and the, um, uh, you know, the woke globalist billionaires are, are in charge. Um, and, uh, and, and, Biden is just obviously a figurehead puppet, um, but he's, you know, uh, not able to, to refrain from soiling himself. So it, it's not his speech in that sense. Let me ask you another question since you're living in a different country than we are. Um, I am an Israeli citizen. I've lived there for years. I have some exposure to other countries. So, you know, we just got a special master to review documents that were taken from a former president in an FBI raid on his home. The left is going absolutely crazy. And many on the left are saying things like, what is wrong with our country that unlike any other country, we're afraid to indict a leader? Mm. Now, it is true that Israel has had prime ministers and presidents sitting in jail. I don't think it makes them look like a great country. I offhand don't know if Britain has jailed prime ministers. You would probably know that easily. But from your vantage point outside of the country, would you look at us as a stronger, I don't know, more moral country if we blocked up a president or if we did it? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, because 
I'm, I'm, you know, I was one of the people who got excited when uh, when it was shouted, "Lock her up!" about Hillary. So I, I, I certainly think that that, that she wasn't president. Yes, I certainly think that political leaders, up to and including prime ministers or presidents, have to be accountable. Uh, the trouble is who they they are accountable to, um, and you know. You cannot trust them being accountable to the uh, thoroughly corrupt FBI. You cannot trust them being accountable to uh, the other political party because, you know, that is third world politics. Um, and, you know, locking up your um, potential political rivals, uh, your most significant political rival, or trying to uh, before an election uh, where they might beat you, or um, trying to bring down a, a properly elected president um, is um, that's the insurrection. You know, they are the insurrectionists and they were insurrectionists for four years um, under Trump. Every, every step of the way, uh, every day, uh, in collusion with the media, they were trying to oust a president who had been properly elected. Um, now, you know, the stuff they've done that they, with every Republican president. I mean, they they did that with Nixon. They did that with I don't know if they did that with Ford, but they did it with Reagan. Well, they just they made Ford Bush. into a bungling idiot incessantly. <laughs> they got rid of him right. because he tripped or something. Um, and yes, Reagan, they hated just as much and they hated Bush just as much, etc. As they palinized them all. But I don't know that it makes us look like a better country if we arrest our presidents. No, no, it doesn't. I mean, it, it looks, you know, there's how it looks to, to the majority of people in the West. And sadly, it's the same scenario that you have in America where the media distort everything. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of British people who hate Trump. I'm fairly unusual um, uh, amongst my friends even uh, in that I absolutely love Trump. Uh, and, you know, strongly supported him. And, you know, and I, I feel that as a as a working class conservative, um, I feel that he's been one of the only people to listen to people like me. Um, and, you know, and uh, the people say leader of the free world for, for uh, the American president. I only really felt that um, as a foreigner. Uh, when Reagan was uh, fighting the Cold War and when Trump was fighting globalism. Um, you know, that, those are the only times where I, I felt that that label uh, is something that, that the whole Western world can take pride in. Um, and, you know, the, the, the disgusting way in which he was removed, uh, which was completely illegitimate, um, and the actions that have occurred since, uh, haven't made me change my mind about Trump. They've been enforced my view on Trump. Um, but that's not the standard European view, certainly. you know. Uh, Again, the standard European view is one we would share if we were only privy to the information they're privy to. If you, you know, I always said if we only read the New York Times, all of us would be liberals. So the yeah. kids hate Trump because based on what they're fed, of course you'd hate Trump. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're all conditioned by what we receive as news. Um, and um, uh, that, that's why, the, you know, the media have been so disgustingly foul 
and they are the handmaids of tyranny. Um, you know, the, we used to think that the, the, the liberty and freedom, uh, the, one of the strongest requirements is a free press. But a free press is absolutely useless if it's a thoroughly corrupt press. And that's where we are. You know, the, the media is so partisan and so on one side. And, and the way they, they treated Trump revealed that. Um, you know, you just have to look at the, the, the media will be perfectly fine with um, a 16 year old boy's room being raided by the FBI um, when it's Trump. Um, and also perfectly fine at the same time with uh, Hunter Biden not being arrested. You know, the, the, it, by any objective moral standard, you cannot have those two things in your head at the same time and be, be a good person. You know, you cannot, you cannot see that as right, but the media present it as right. Uh, and that's what most people receive. And, you know, a lot of people in the UK have... Um, you know, probably think that Biden's a, a, a nice old uncle, you know, uh, uncle type figure. Um, uh, but uh, the, anyone who analyzes it in depth and looks at that speech the other day uh, knows that that's not the case. Well, we know that CNN even changed the colors. Yes. That's yeah. how blatant the media is in not letting people know what's And that was it. That was in real time, too, as well. In real time, they're. They're changing the image people are receiving wow. because they know it's so appalling. You know, we talked a few minutes ago about what we can do to fight back. And maybe academia is difficult. Journalism is a place you can fight back. But we had Fox News, but Fox News has moved far left. Um, yeah. And we had um, what's it, one American News was the one that was thrown off of Fios or something. There are kind yeah, of startups so. of stronger news organizations that aren't left wing but somehow they seem to drift left wing. I, if I remember correctly, Rush used to say, um, you guys must remember how he would put it, that being a leftist is the easy choice you have to fight to be on the right. Do you remember how mm. he used to say that? Yeah. Because everybody that. naturally drifts to the left. Being liberal is the easiest choice you can make. You don't really right. have to think. You don't really have to think. Thank you. It's all about feelings. It's funny. I think the opposite. I think that the amount of rationalization that's necessary to be a leftist requires a lot of work. Seriously. Actually, I think it requires, it requires a lobotomy. And I think that's the brave new world part of it all. Well, it's, I mean, um, it's, I, I don't want to sound like the counterpart of Biden, but it is, you know, good is always much more difficult than evil. Uh, you know, destroying things is very easy. Um, creating things is much more difficult. Even that, I'm, that's just not my, I mean, I understand what you guys are all saying, but I, have you ever tried to wreck something? I mean, to me, I, you know, like I just have such respect for, for something that was built. You know, even if my goal is to smash it with a hammer, I mean, unless I have some good reason to, I mean, I, I can't think of any time I, I didn't have a good reason to do it. But, you know, I remember being a kid and just, you know, seeing other kids doing, you know, acts of vandalism. And it, it just always I shrank back in horror. I would never do something like that. I would really need to have to force myself to do it. Like the easy thing for me is I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? 
And in that case, you sound like the ideal neighbor. I'd love to be neighbors, Daniel. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I, I, you better I, have I, a good isn't there, isn't there at the same time this strong human instinct to destroy things? And, and part of the appeal of, of the left, especially to the kind of people who join Antifa, is that it allows them to, to, to be as bad as they possibly wish to, but consider themselves good. You know, it allows right. you to do all these antisocial things and to behave in incredibly selfish ways. It gives you license for that, but because you're still a good person, because you're you're following the the permitted ideology. But Ed, wasn't that part, part of motivated the... that much by wanting to be a good person? I mean, I think that every human being is motivated by morality, so I understand that part of the equation. But I don't think that they're thinking well. You know, if I kill enough people, then people will like me. I don't think they're thinking like that at all. Ed, you're conjuring up some Atlas Shrug for me, for me, because as you know, the businessman is evil, and so, <laughs> you know, if you you're convinced that the capitalists are evil, it's easy to destroy what they created, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, the first step towards hurting somebody is dehumanizing them. I mean, that's what I was saying about Biden's speech. I think that. It was about dehumanizing people that I think he's about to throw in jail or, or otherwise commit some sort of act of aggression against yeah. us. But there is, there is, there are people who, at the same time, there are people who delight in the, in the evil of it, um, you know, and they're always there are. Um, and you know that, and um, when you you you've been informed by moral relativism for for seventy odd years. Um, then um, it, it becomes very easy to, to, to give in to that more evil instinct, you know, and, and these are people who are informed by um, post-structuralist French critics who said there's nothing more beautiful than a burning car. You know, these, these, the riots are good for some of these people, you know, uh, and, and I'm very pleased to hear that you instinctively... Um, uh, are, are horrified by these things, but there's people who are instinctively delighted by them. Well, then they can also use this and throw it on TikTok and then they're famous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're in a drama of their own making and isn't it great, you know, and look at me burning this stuff. Mm. Yeah. Yep. 100%. Before we get to the end, uh, there's one other area, I, at least, I mean, at least one other area I want to get to at least a little, and that's China. Um, yeah. First, First question I had for you on China is, it seems that the Chinese have violated at least the spirit, if not the letter of the agreement with the British on the turnover of Hong Kong. What's the, you know, is that something that's in the news? Do the British people care about it? Do they just write it off? Is it just, well, we lost and it's gone? What, what's it's, the story about that? It's completely written off. Um, again, the, the media have absolutely nothing to say on it. Um, and Therefore, the majority of the people have nothing to say on it and don't even know it. Um, there was some coverage when there were the pro-democracy riots. There was some coverage of that, but in a kind of, um, you know, third item down on the list, slightly embarrassed, here's this news, and then move on. And, um, you know, they never followed up on it. They, the, the media have been very, very... Uh, um, 
very eager to generate an emotional response to Ukraine. Um, they had no desire to generate an emotional response to what happened in Hong Kong, you know. And um, we had people waving the British flag there because they, they uh, um, you know, still had some sense of loyalty to Britain and some sense of connection and some hope that we would defend their rights. Uh, and we haven't. I mean, we're not in a practical situation to have been able to, probably. We're, we're now militarily far too weak to have done anything effective about it. But um, the, well, we've been cowards, utter cowards on the response to China, uh, on Hong Kong. But the media don't discuss it and therefore most people are unaware of it and don't care about it. Does that foreshadow cowardice on Taiwan? What do the British think about a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Is it? Um, I, I should think that um, uh, it all depends on how the media portray it. If the WEF want a conflict with China over Taiwan, and if uh, the people who are in control of the media want that conflict, if it's a, a globalist <coughs> idea that we should fight for Taiwan, then you'll see the full resources of the British media applied to making people emotionally really care about Taiwan. And that's what will happen. If they don't want that, then they won't do that. And most British people will take an isolationist stance and say, what's it got to do with us? Um, but, you know, I travel around in the UK and uh, anywhere you go in the UK now, you'll find Ukrainian flags flying you know, far more than you find British flags flying because um, the media have been pressing this relentlessly nonstop and the government have that we should care about Ukraine and that Ukraine matters to us. Um, of course, it doesn't really. Um, there's no more reason to, to worry about Ukraine than there is about, uh, you know, a hundred African conflicts that none of us have noticed um, because they aren't in the media. Um, so, uh, uh, it, the, the British response will be dictated by the media, sadly. Do you think that Britain and America should cut off economic ties with China, either immediately or, or over time? I think if, um, if the USA and the UK and all of the other major Western powers um, were not thoroughly corrupt, we would never have engaged with China in the first place. We would never have outsourced, um, you know, a big chunk of our economies and a big chunk of our manufacturing to China. Um, this is a regime that um, harvests organs from prisoners whilst they're still alive. You know, it's, um, you know, we, we um, looked at some footage of uh, um, riots in Shanghai you know, the, the, the treatment of the, the people by the Chinese regime is uh, thoroughly disgusting and is in line with anything done by uh, dictatorial regimes of the past. Um, it's fully in line with the, the grim history of communism. Um, you know, all they gave people was this deal where you can uh, become individually more prosperous than other people, will accept capitalism to that extent. But all that you have is still ultimately at the direction of the state and we can come in and take it at any time we choose. 
Um, that's the deal that, that the, the Chinese government offered to the Chinese people. That's what Lenin offered in 1920 with the new economic policy, right? I mean, yeah. every communist country has to invoke, bring some market reforms in. Otherwise, there's just mass starvation. They can't produce anything. Uh, absolutely, because, because communism doesn't work. You know, so, but uh, I think the Chinese have been the most successful example ever uh, of a communist um, nation learning to accommodate capitalism where it benefits them. You know, See, and, and the, the, drum that, the, the drum that I like to bang is that the US imposed an economic blockade on Cuba. We had an embargo on Cuba. We didn't trade with the Soviet Union. And yep. those countries were never able to get economically strong enough to threaten us. And China, we did the opposite. We engaged them economically. Um, you know, I still remember Charlie Tree and some of the other Chinese financiers giving Clinton bags and bags of money in the 1990s. Yeah. And, and we let them into the World Trade Organization. We let them into, you know, the world economic system. And they well, I mean, used... it, it began under Nixon, didn't it? I mean, yes. it, you know, um, and, yeah, and... but it really didn't accelerate until Deng Xiaoping's reforms. Right. I mean, yeah. Nixon met with Mao and I mean, they didn't really loosen up under Mao. That was more that was more real politique in the 70s. It wasn't until Mao passed away, I think, in 1980 that Deng came in and they started trying to bring in, you know, what Gorbachev did with perestroika. And the difference, in my opinion, is that we allowed it to happen. We allowed them to engage with us. We traded with them and they used their share of the mutual benefits of trade to build a military to threaten us. That's that's Absolutely. what I see. I think part of that was, well, a big part of that was the Soviet Union at the time. Right. We were trying to open up China and build a relationship with China in order in order to. Um, you know, combat Soviet expansionism, right? But you yeah, sometimes, you know, that's, a, that, sometimes that's a good point, Mike. And I, are a mistake. It, it, it brings to mind that famous saying that my enemy's enemy is my friend. Right. And, and right. it really isn't, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, even, you know, Reagan armed the Mujahideen against the Soviets. That's how I've been yes, Huh? <laughs> what, what'd you say? Right. He brought up bin Laden. Right, right. Well, that's where I was going to go. I mean, yes, this, the the Afghans were able to repel the Soviet invasion, but you know, twelve years later, thirteen years later, they were bombing the World Trade Center. I mean, well, really I, my basic view of, of what happened with China is that you you cannot accommodate you cannot accommodate an enemy until that enemy is defeated. You know, if you look at what America did after World War II with Germany and with Japan, that was very very smart. But the enemy was already defeated. You know, you were kind to the enemy after defeat. But the, the, the point of defeat is that it allows this turning point where they change their nature and their culture. And you assist them and facilitate that. You know, whereas when you um, uh, try to accommodate people who haven't been defeated already, um, then, then you simply empower them in the things that, that make them oppositional to you in the first place. Um, and that's what we did with China. We thought that we could embrace China. The West thought that we could embrace China and China would become more like us. And what actually happened is that we became more like China. Um, you know, the, the, 
uh, and that's where we are, that, that we've, uh, um, you know, the globalist leaders uh, and people like Trudeau are, are really honest about this. This is one, you know, I wouldn't, it's, honesty isn't a word I'd normally apply to them. But when Trudeau was asked what nation he admires, he said China. And, he, and then he went on to explain that, um, that, that a, a dictator, Chinese dictatorship can deal with things much more efficiently than a, than a um, democracy can. You know, and they genuinely think this. They are, they are enamoured of the Chinese system where you combine the capacity to create wealth with um, the total um, control of the elite. And they think that's a great system and that's what they want for us. Well, we were talking before the show and, and I told you that I think that free trade is the means by which free countries import dictatorship from dictatorships. And I think that's a perfect example. You know, China is a perfect example of that. Yeah, you know, I mean, we should, have, we, we should never yeah. have traded with them to the extent that we did in the first place. We should never have outsourced uh, manufacturing. Um, and, you know, in response to COVID, we, we saw that, you know, the Chinese are, are largely complicit in it. There's obviously there's Fauci funding there as well. But, um, you know, the Chinese bear 80% of the responsibility for COVID and nobody would even consider punishing them for it, you know, because we've let them get too powerful and too integrated in our economies. Well, I think it's time to unwind that integration. Yeah, who's going to do that? Vote for me. <laughs> if you were running, that would be easy. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, how do you, un- un- you know, untangle these connections now? Because, um, you know, you'd, ha- you'd, have a, you'd have a big economic hit from doing so, I think probably it's the wisest course of action. But, um, you know, any any national leader that genuinely wanted um, freedom and liberty in the West still would want to distance themselves from China um, and would want to find out which politicians are paid by China. Yeah, it, it's funny. At times, I feel like uh, Ross Perot was la- laughed at back in the 90s when he ran for, for president in 92. But Boy, when I think about what he what he said and, and where we are now, he was he was right about a lot of this, the, the giant sucking sound and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, um, you know, it, there were there were a fair number of people who saw this coming. I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and Pat, Pat that, Buchanan, I think, was one of them too. Pat yeah. Buchanan. And but you know people, that makes it more tragic. People forget, and I know you, you know, that Reagan and Thatcher were protectionists. Hmm. Okay? They weren't complete free traders. They believed well, in, I, they believed mean, in keeping been... manufacturing at home and not ex- exporting those jobs. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think Trump had a very smart type of protectionism as well. Um, oh, you know, it was... It was, you know, build back your industrial base and return it. Um, and and it, it was focused. You know, I think protectionism across the board generally does, is a poor policy. But when it's focused in specific areas you need to improve, then it then it can work. Um, and, you know, 
trading with China is, is just so self-defeating um, because, as I say, we've imported um, uh, Chinese thinking uh, rather than the other way around. Before, before we wrap up, there was one other question or one, one other topic I want to ask you about. Do you, what, what's your sense of the world economy right now? Do you think we're on the precipice of, of, of any kind of economic disaster? Do you think digital currencies are coming? And if so, what's your view on them? Um, I, I, you know, it, it does look fairly disastrous at the moment, but I, I, I've got a slight feeling that there'll be a, um, a bit like we had with COVID responses where, we, you know, in Britain, we've dropped some of the worst anti-liberty uh, measures that we had and, and it seems to have calmed down. I think we might see a bit of that economically as well. I hate making predictions and I'm not very good at it, um, but I tend to think more about the past and talk more about the past and how it's created where we are. Um, but um, I, I, I don't see an immediate massive economic crash at the moment. Um, I think there's still a, a bit of legs in the, in the system to go. Um, but I could be completely wrong on that. But, you know, I think they'll string it out a bit longer. Um, but I do think that they will bring in digital currencies as fast as they can, because why wouldn't they? Um, most people won't object to it. Most people will see it as convenient and it increases their power. I definitely agree with the second part that not only do I think that they'll bring it in, bring in digital currencies as quickly as they can. I think that in the same way that, Lots of people were begging for lockdowns and, you know, demanding that other people stay home and everybody else should wear a mask and get your vaccine. I think that that people want to be in the prison of a, of a digital currency, not me and not a lot of us. But I think uh, I think many of our fellow citizens do. Um, and as far as economic crisis, I, I, I tie it back to Ukraine. I think that the whole purpose of of the economic suicide that, that we're seeing in with Ukraine is to facilitate, if not accelerate, an economic crash. I mean, that's that's what makes sense to me. But yeah, I, I think I that's what they want, and I, I, I think you know, uh, crash and reboot is what they want to do. You know, and it's uh, it's Bill Gates thinking. You know, the, the this system we're not got quite the level of power that we'd like. Let's crash it and reboot it. Um, and I, I do think I agree with you entirely that that's deliberate. Um, I just think there might be, a, we might see as we had with COVID, a bit of a pause. Um, and you know, they, they might give us the illusion of, of rowing back on some of that. Um, but you know, that's I, I totally agree that's the ultimate aim. Okay, any last comments from anyone? No, this has been great, Daniel. We appreciate you coming on with us. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me, and it's it's been lovely chatting with you. Uh, fantastic. We can do it again. You'll come back. Yeah, right. I, well, uh, anytime you want to invite me, I'm happy to come back, and uh, uh, I hope it wasn't too boring. Okay, I, I have <laughs> I have a few comments, Daniel. I have a few comments for you. Um, yeah. Unbelievably impressed with your knowledge of what's going on across the pond. And um, if you do want to run for president, you're going to have to get rid of that accent. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, unfortunately, uh, um, uh, I, I have a bad accent, even by British, um, you know, standards. It's bad beautiful, but well. they're going to think you were born in Africa or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, folks. You'll get, me, you'll get me doing racist impressions. I don't want to do that. No, no, no. We're not going there. <laughs> Daniel, do you want to up. let anybody, you want to let people know where they can find you? Um, yeah, well, uh, uh, as was said, um, most of the people I contact with uh, is through um, the Evil Empire of Facebook um, <laughs> at the moment. So if anybody wants to send me a friend request on, on Facebook, that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to, to have news to announce about a second book uh, soon. But if, if people want to look up my book, then uh, that's on Amazon and it's, uh, um, you know, should be available um, if people want to look up that as well. But, um, you know, yeah, anybody wants to get in touch with me, Facebook's probably the best option. Okay, if you Google his book, remember that they don't use Zs in England, they substitute Ss all over the place. So yeah. civilization. Yes. <laughs> We're going to close it out for today. We'll be back next week. Regular time. Daniel it was an absolute pleasure. You're being with us. And with that, I wish everyone a wonderful evening.